Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. This is the first Monday night of um, our series here on Mondays at the Poetry Project. It's the 50th year that the Poetry Project has been in existence. Good job, Poetry Project, yeah. Um, which is sick. Um, and um, we have a series of events um, that uh, we are doing sort of, um, especially for um, the project's 50th anniversary, um, and you can find descriptions of all of them. And here, I just want to tell you very briefly about the one that we will be doing on Monday, November something. Um, you can, I am lacking the date here. Um, Monday, November 28th, but it's this um, event where we're going to be, we were, um, I went down to the Library of Congress where our archive is in a little bit of disarray, but they have incredible stuff there because we have 50 years of recordings from this place, which is really dope. Um, so what's nice about that is that you have people like Gwendolyn Brooks, um, like Joe Travlo, Eileen Miles when she was literally reading for her first time in public, um, you know, things like that where that's pretty, or maybe that's not the historical record, someone can correct me, but I th it was one of the first times reading with Joe Travlo. Um, and other people, um, and so there are going to be a couple of people sort of introducing those um, those recordings, which no one has ever heard, um, and it's very exciting to um, have those finally out there, um, and hopefully we can use that as a uh, starting point to force the Library of Congress's hand to digitize all of them. They're doing it slowly, slowly, slowly. Um, and um, just to tell you about what's coming up here at the project, on Wednesday, there's a reading with Vincent Katz, Anna Fitzgerald, and Todd Colby. Um, and on Oh, on Friday, um, we're going to be celebrating the Signal series, um, which Ugly Duckling does in collaboration with BOM um, and others. And they, um, it's pretty awesome. And you should, again, check it out. Check out all the listings in here. The next time we will meet um, is for uh, Nez Duplan and Loma, Christopher Soto, um, on Monday the 17th, which is one week from today. Uh, I should make a note of that in my calendar. Um, so Jameson's gonna read first. In reading through Jameson Fitzpatrick's poems last night as I started to write this intro, I found myself returning to the space of direction, of directed event, often as it were, happening as limited proximity. It is this positioning of language in the poem that I often associate with Tim Blugos in the way that language must be bent to the limitations of, of, of the capacity for recursion, even or especially within the non-reversible experience of time's arrow. In that way, I find Lugos' poetic in Jameson's work as pertains to understanding the topography of the interior as presenta presentational corroboration of the self. Fitzpatrick writes of Washington Square Park, people used, quote, people used to be hanged here. Records differ on the exact location, though that is not the point. The point is people used to be hanged everywhere. People are still hanging people. How can I sit still where more than 20,000 bodies are buried and not think of this? But, and I think this is why I feel so close to these poems as a reader, uh, what seems most urgent here is that this question or 
the question that, or, or, or the questions that we ask, that, Fitzper that Fitzpatrick asks, uh, asks, interrogate the closeness that one comes to, not only uh, the impossible avoidance of the political, the desire to escape the political desperately, and the proximity that ultimately is at the root of the upholding of our fantasies of capital and therefore our acceptance of it, tacit, patient, and utterly duped, but, quote, it is also my not having to describe his leather loafers for you, to fill in the white space of this body, straight and able, and also my body's proximity to his, socially and physically on this train he is taking from the Hamptons and I am taking from the Pines, and how my belief in his capital affirms it, that if he were to look my way with the look of desire, it would be worth more to me than any gaze. There's a difficulty in articulating this feeling that I'm struck with as a reader of this work, writing about it now in part because of the continued destruction of diction in the public political realm that, among other notable moments in the destruction of discourse I watched last night and couldn't stop thinking about afterward, that is being articulated in Fitzpatrick's poems. The limitation of distance as it inscribes event and that the descriptors we append, the descriptors for loafers, for example, are missing the mark when we cannot recognize the park for the burial ground, the stadium for the torture chamber, the school for the international nonprofit hedge fund neoliberal slumlord ethically bankrupt slave driver. What I turn to in Jameson's po poems then is the understanding that these are always the event, that discomforting space where we long for something other, the fact that no proximity can serve to extricate ourselves. These are ourselves that we must reckon with. As he writes, you have to choose what to feel bad about. And elsewhere, I woke up and it was political. Please welcome Jameson Fitzpatrick to the Poetry Project. Thank you so much, Judah, for that introduction and for having me here tonight. I'm so excited to read for you all and with Ali Power, no less. So thank you, and I hope I will live up to Judah's words. And before I read, I just want to say, fuck Christopher Columbus. Um, what a day to be reading. Um, and I wanted to begin by recognizing um, that we stand upon the ground of the Lenape people. Um, this is customary to do in many disciplines within the Americas and not something I hear a lot about in poetry. But it seems really important, um, and important before reading these poems, and important on this day in particular, but also every day. So thank you. And uh, this is the first poem. I'll never be beautiful the way certain. I'll never be beautiful the way certain men are beautiful. The tall boy at the protest everyone wants a picture of, who is the tall boy and all the pictures later. But I prefer ugly men. Not ugly, but imperfect, short like me, or big-toothed with a little belly, maybe. Having sex with a beautiful man makes me crazier than I am already when I make myself ugly, willing otherwise, nails at my skin till it's ruined, a field picked of its flowers. Not the least beautiful thing. But to say I'm more beautiful than some would be proving something which the beautiful people I speak of never do. They are their own evidence. In college, I used to talk about beauty and therapy in terms of Occupy Wall Street as an inequality. There was the 1% and there was the rest of us. 
Beauty was easy the way money was, not, and somehow all the more difficult for my relative beauty and relative wealth. I was stupid in college. All I saw at Zuccotti Park were people sure of their own importance, which they were, sure, but they were important. I don't go to the protest to feel beautiful. I go because putting my body there, even if I suspect my body there is unimportant, feels more correct than the alternative, more right. Not right dancing the other night with a mustachioed man hard in hand already when he turned me around and I knew he wanted to fuck me, which ruined it, the idea alone that he might want something I'm unable to fulfill. I'll never be beautiful the way certain women are, my friends and women I see on the train on their way somewhere, women who men want to fuck and then do, women who choose it. I could have been a good woman if I could have been a girl. But then beauty might have been a bigger problem as men make it for women, unless I still would have been better at it, performed better under that set of expectations. I'll never be a good man. I'll never be as beautiful as the corpse flower even, the one in bloom in the Bronx people flock to take pictures of. I'm one of them, though I am not one half of one of the beautiful straight couples or one of the beautiful age-appropriate gay couples or the beautiful young lesbian couple who are never not holding hands. I'm not there alone, to be fair. I'm with a man who loves me, but not how I want it, not the never not holding hands way. A man whose most beautiful years are behind him. His most beautiful was more than mine, which might also be behind me, though what is behind me is of no use to anyone, though men like to touch it and tell me what a shame it is not to be able to get in. If just one thing about me I will not change were different, taller, more man, more woman, a bottom, my body could be beautiful, I think, as a painter stands before their work searching for the source of their dissatisfaction. I know better than to believe fixing my face would fix anything else, but let me return to the analogy of money. Though it can't buy happiness, there's solace in spending it. And so my sadness might be softened, looking down at my long, long legs. This next poem I, I wrote in response to what I felt was occasionally an imperative to write about trauma. Um, and here's what I came up with in response to that. Poem in which nothing bad ever happens to me. I get the job and the fellowship and make the train and remember to pay my rent on time and don't get too drunk and don't send a text I shouldn't and always use a condom. 
The car does not make an illegal left turn, and I do not have to brake hard to avoid it, and I do not fly off my bike and flip several feet in the air, and I do not land thinking, not on my face, not on my face, hard on my right arm, and I do not break my elbow, and a mean orthopedist does not tell me I have to move it anyway or risk losing my range of motion, and I do not have to teach while on Percocet, which is harder and less fun than you might imagine. None of my friends ever kill themselves. I never even meet one of them because I am never admitted to a psychiatric hospital because I never try to kill myself or threaten to or pretend to repeatedly in order to prevent someone from abandoning me, which I'll never learn is what a therapist I'll never meet refers to as a communication tactic. In this poem, I don't even fear abandonment. Jacques never leaves me, or I never meet Jacques, or we fuck once, or we fuck a few times, but love never enters in. Love, in this case, is the bad thing. Or the absence of kindness in the face of love. So in this poem, wherever there is love, there will be kindness, and where there is no kindness, there will be no love. I don't hate the feeling of a man inside me, or there are never any men inside me in this poem, and also never any expectations. I am taller and more masculine, and everyone I want to fuck wants me to fuck them. Another man I love with a French name never pushes me down into the cold concrete of a stairwell and fucks me without a condom. If he fucks me at all, it is tenderly, in an expensive hotel where I do not learn to like it again because I never stopped. I never convince the boy I am sharing a hotel room with on a high school trip to fool around, and he never insists on fucking me, and I never say stop or can't remember whether or not I do, and it does not haunt me because it never happens. When I'm 16, a middle-aged man next to me at the movies does not touch my knee, and it does not terrify me how much I like it. I'm never a teenager at all, if it can be arranged. I see the car coming and don't make the left turn. My parents never fight, drink, keep booze in the house, name me after it. There's still pot in this poem, but I smoke less of it. I don't have to keep stopping and starting to get high. This poem pours out of me, easy, like conversations with strangers at a bar, even when I'm sober, which I might be sometime at one of the bars in this poem. There's nothing I don't want to write about. I love writing. I love my body. I'm not gay in this poem, or it is not hard to be gay in this poem. Stet, it's been useful because it's been hard. But not so hard. I'm not forced to come out in the sixth grade, at least. Not to my parents, because I never get reported for writing something obscene about Justin Timberlake on an AOL message board. And not to everyone else, because it isn't so apparent to them already. In middle school, none of the boys ever follow me around in the hallway between classes lisping, and I don't have a crush on one of them, and he doesn't ask me out as a joke one day when everyone is hanging out by the picnic tables before school, and I don't find myself somehow relieved that I know it's a joke the whole time because falling for it would have been way worse. Phil Bruno doesn't write an essay for AP English our senior year of high school, which is both a personal attack on me and on gay people more generally. He doesn't read it aloud in front of the entire class, and the teacher doesn't let him finish, and I don't gather my things and walk out. 
If I do, I don't walk straight out of the school without stopping to look at anyone. I go to the principal's office and raise hell and maybe make a YouTube video about it that I parlay into some small fame. I don't feel embarrassed about how many times I've let him copy my math homework. In this poem, I get revenge only from the people who owe it to me, who is no one. On Halloween, when I'm nine, my father's parents aren't killed in a plane crash just into international waters, and so there's never an investigation with which the Egyptian government will not cooperate, and the U.S. authorities never determine that the co-pilot seized the controls, did it on purpose, but cannot explain why. I never know my father as the child this happens to. Things don't get bad at home for a while. Two years later, I don't come for the first time at summer camp at the hands of a boy who was a year or two older, who I didn't know before this summer but knew of because he'd gotten kicked out of my elementary school for bringing in a BB gun. I don't pretend to be asleep the whole time because I am afraid of him, but also afraid I don't want him to stop. I don't tell our counselors the next day because I don't know how to feel about it, but recognize it as familiar, the first bad thing that was done to me, and now neither of us can stay. I don't feel guilty about this for years. And the first bad thing, much further back than that, is not my first memory or what I understand to be the first because I have smoothed and perfected it over time like a stone in my palm. Here my hands are empty. It never happens, so I don't have to tell you about it. I never write this poem. I never become a poet. I make money instead. Thank you. So each summer, I somehow end up um, spending a lot of time on Fire Island, which I'm very ambivalent, ambivalent about, which you'll hear more about shortly. Uh, but for years, I've struggled to like, write a good Fire Island poem. And this summer, I really committed myself to the task. So uh, this is the result of that effort. Uh, and this is also. Of course, I'm sure some of you will recognize an homage to Frank O'Hara's A True Account of Talking to the Sun at Fire Island. A True Account of Overhearing Andy Cohen at Fire Island. His voice woke me this afternoon, loud and queer on the beach, saying, you can have a glass of rosé at lunch. I missed the rest, but opened my eyes in time to see him strolling there through the surf with his dog and two younger men, tanned and toned, but still boyish in their appeal, nearly identical in their woven straw hats, though one a little shorter and the brim of one hat wider than the other. I know the dog's name because I follow him on Instagram, the man, not the dog, as I wanted to follow him then down the beach calling, what? Excuse me, Mr. Cohen? I've been having a crisis of confidence approximately since birth, so I was wondering if I might join you on your walk along the water, as I've got a feeling everything would change for me if I were the kind of person people spotted with Andy Cohen in the pines. I might get a book deal, or believe in men who say I'm attractive. 
That would be crazy, of course. I'd look ridiculous in one of those hats. They got smaller and smaller, the famous man and the two younger in triangle formation behind him with the dog darting in between. I was left with my large hangover and too small towel and the solace that, to the average eye, I almost resemble them, the younger men I shouldn't assume are sleeping with him. But I know better. The difference of the hats, for instance. They're easy in a way I'll never be, not as in sex, not as in easily won. I mean, they move in their bodies through space with the ease of winners, naturals at being. Being, being my biggest problem, followed by beauty and fame in roughly that order. Sex too, but I used to be better at it, but too early. Money I was always bad at. Last night I took half a tab, hoping to get some advice from the ghost of Frank O'Hara, or at least the moon, but all I got was abandoned by Jacques at the underwear party and too anxious to get it up in the backroom sea of bodies. The whole scene dazzling me, like the sun I couldn't get too close or even look too long. I could never fathom pleasure without hardship, how men can take it in each other so effortlessly. Effortlessness, as it happens, is what my poems lack, but genuinely, if I've got anything going for me, it's my difficulty. You may not be the greatest thing on earth or the biggest dick on the beach, but you're different, Jameson. That's enough. Other voices might be calling to you, but they're calling you all the same. You heard a little bit of this one from Judah. White gaze. And that's uh, like the category that I fill, not the, the looking. <laughs> White gaze. Privilege is a handsome man taking up two seats on the train. Now four, putting his feet up. It is also my not having to describe his leather loafers for you to fill in the white space of his body, straight and able, and also my body's proximity to his, socially and physically on this train he is taking from the Hamptons and I am taking from the Pines and how my belief in his capital affirms it, that if he were to look my way with a look of desire, it would be worth more to me than any gaze. What I'm trying to say is proximity is the problem with white gaze. I'm one of them, so I can say that. Proximity, because it promises the possibility of arriving where all the room in the world waits to be claimed. Privilege is a tease, we forget what we learned in grade school. Everything for the taking, taken from someone. And I have two more poems for you. Uh, and this one I would like to dedicate to my friend Diana Hamilton, who's here, um, who was a great inspiration to me in the writing of this poem, but also generally in poetry and personhood. 
short essay on the lyric conceptual divide. All opinions are the speakers of the poems. Appropriations are not endorsements. Everything that happens in the poem happens to me, but the me is not me, or rather it is not I, though I may have been me in the past. This poem will contain an image, the beauty and or meaning and or value of which I will assert either by virtue of itself or of its context. A long-armed teenager bites his lip on a loop so that he is never not biting his lip or about to bite his lip or having just bitten his lip. This image is either interesting or it is not. If it is interesting, it is because it is so either to the artist who introduces it or to the audience that receives it. If I am the artist and it is interesting to me, the boy is a stranger or is known to me. If he is a stranger, I took this image either with or without consent, or the only extent to which I have taken this image is from someone else who took it first, that is, from the internet. If he is known to me, he is either known intimately or barely. If he is known barely, he may be a stranger, the image of whom I took with his consent, thereby he became less strange to me. Or he may look familiar because his face is a famous face featured in a proliferation of images. If he is known intimately, I may or may not have had sex with him. He is old enough, it is not impossible, but young enough, it is possible he has not yet had sex with anyone. He may be a poet. If he is not, he may or may not have aspirations of being a poet. He may not be a poet. If he is my first lover from high school, now dead, this becomes a confessional poem. If the gift does not exist, this is a fiction. After seven months of sobriety, his longest ever, the drug took hold of him again. Through everything, his family never stopped believing in him and loving him and only wished that he could have believed in himself. To all of you who are facing this horrible scourge as the family or friend of an addict, please reach out every day and be there for them. Let them know how much you love them and that there is nothing they could do to lose that love. To all of you who are addicted, never give up. A slip up isn't a failure and you don't ever have to be ashamed. The boy bites his lip again. And this is the last poem. Thank you all so much for being here. I woke up and it was political. I made coffee, and the coffee was political. I took a shower, and the water was. I walked down the street in short shorts and a Bob Miser tank top, and they were political. The walking, and the shorts, and the beefcake silk screen of the man posing in a G-string. I forgot my sunglasses, and later, on the train, that was political, when I studied every handsome man in the car. Who I thought was handsome was political. I went to work at the university, and everything was very obviously political, the department and the institution. All the cigarettes I smoked between classes were political, where I threw them when I was through. 
I taught Angela Davis to a formerly incarcerated man nearly twice my age, and how I was complicit in my privilege was political. I was blonde, and it was political. So was the difference between blonde with and without an E. I had long hair, and it was political. I shaved my head, and it was. That I didn't know how to grieve when another person was killed in America was political, and it was political when America killed another person. Who they were, and what color and gender, and who I am in relation. I couldn't think about it for too long without feeling a helplessness like childhood. I was a child, and it was political, being a boy who was bad at it. I couldn't catch, and so the ball became political. My mother read to me almost every night, and the conditions that enabled her to do so were political. That my father's money was new was political, that it was proving something. Someone called me a faggot, and it was political. I called myself a faggot, and it was political. How difficult my life felt relative to how difficult it was, was political. I thought I could become a writer, and it was political that I could imagine it. I thought I was not a political poet, and still my imagination was political. It had been. This whole time, I was asleep. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jameson. That was fantastic. And thank you all for being here. Um, so without further ado, um, also, if I got the linguistics wrong in this, I, that's OK. I don't know that much about linguistics. Uh, Ellie Power's book, A Poem for, <laughs> for Record Keepers, begins with a quote from John Wieners, who writes, I must unlearn what has been taught me. So what is being taught to us here, and how do we, we read Power's work as being an unlearning of a grammar, of a record that constitutes meaning as to have been taught? I think the answer is to be found when we try to evaluate these poems, this poem, this serial poem, as an entity of constituent grammatical form. Meaning is, uh, this is in parentheses, meaning is made across a phrase governed by the noun that breaks with it in some way, say, like, say, Clark Coolidge often does by rerouting the importance of the noun phrase and perhaps providing an interference or of reactivity, a buffer in the circuit by decentering the grid of meaning. The displacement of the noun in many of Alley's lines seems to revert to a dependency grammar, whereby the syntactical chain is reliant on a one-to-one -one nodal relationship where each unit is lexically dependent, not on the whole, but on, let us say, the record of having been in the poetic sentence. But then we also understand that we are working through language at the level of the sentence, at the level of the record, at the level of the entry, the cut, or the break in the seam of time. As Power writes, put them in order, put them on top of me, and thus to make the point, chicken wings with a side of stuff. Sincerity. The displacement of the record, then, is a distributed network of meaning that does not, cannot, hinge on what has been taught. It is not about a direct reproduction of meaning, but a causal displacement across the field of elucidating the experience of language. 
What I think is most vital about power as a poem for record keepers is the way that the syntax shows the slippage of unlearning, the necessity of unlearning as a phrasal composition that is at its core nodal, while simultaneously reaching with the sort of syntacular constituency that links the edges of narratological malleability and substantive fracturing as when Ali writes, sometimes when I eat, I feel like I'm stuffed. It forms along the edges of bad readings and baggage claims, a longitudinal swirl of pearl pins on the hem of my lineage. You like my ass. Let's hang out. The mapping of the longitudinal, longitudinal, longitudinal or linear form, which is, of course, a broken or bordered composition here, is what ultimately allows for a space to disentangle. But what can we unlearn? Perhaps only that the experiential is not record, as record is a determinant of the collective action of memorial collection, that the record is not caught between noun and verb phrases, but in itself activates them first by the performance of unlearning the present, that the record, if it is to be kept, must dwell in the uncertainty of relation. Please join me in welcoming Ali Power to the Poetry Project. Thank you, Judah. That, it feels good to be read. Um, I'm really happy to be here and really happy to um, be reading with Jameson. Um, I'm going to start by reading from a poem for record keepers published by Argos in the spring. Um, it's a book length poem. It's um, in seven sections. Each section has seven poems. Each poem has seven lines. I'm just going to jump around. Um, not going to tell you what section or number it is. Once there were three kinds of beings, seven, one, one, six, two, six. Sometimes I write down a series of numbers. Can I make the garden grow? You're doing a beautiful job, like oars. There's a postcard coming from exactly what I mean. Neil Young used to dig Picasso. Memory inherits paralysis. I'm all fucked up on feelings. Can I count on you, tugboat? The sea is immense. Drink up. Someday we'll oppose each other in the championship game. Old women of Sunday, February on the houses, still another delicate head. You were looking at everyone, but you wanted everyone to look at you. Hurry up. Reading used to mean fortune-telling. I want to remember every song. But what I wanted before, I don't want anymore because I'm getting something else instead. My name is Babe. I sell perfume. Thank you for your order. Cut your losses, said the Viking. This is supposed to be fun. But then your neighbor and her friend invite themselves in, ask if we're having a party, are terrible dancers. Improvisers in mirage, they whistle. Write that down. We were all having fun. We were getting used to it. Then too many French phrases, too many breasts. We are not figurative. We are not pom-poms. Whoa. When Robert Plant sings, want a whole lot of love, he's talking about suffering. Give the people what they want. Turn, turn back, turn away, turn on, covered, uncovered, naked, not naked. How do you make your music? Chicken wings with a side of stuff, 
sincerity or the new insincerity. I'm sorry. The moon used to be closer to the earth. Remember time? Socrates used to say, what do you want? In fancy sandals in the vertiginous lost and found, we are code names, we are irregular patches of dust, phosphorescent swarms of ellipses in the afternoon, return to our jobs. Sometimes when I eat, I feel like I'm suffering. It forms along the edges of bad readings and baggage claims, a longitudinal swirl of pearl pins on the hems of my lineage. You like my ass. Let's hang out. Are you the type of person who knows things? Do you wonder what children do? There's an omelet on your chest. There are rivers and oceans still hiding. There are flowers. All the dinosaurs are dead. Let's hang out. Everything is just beginning. Everything is comprehensible. Take, for example, Utah until you break it down. It's like that proverb says, I'm so fucking bored. Let's hang out. Don't take it personally, your personal abyss. I don't understand the meaning of equilibrium or the anamorphousness of ourselves. Say, I know exactly what you mean. I will fuck up your life. Let's hang out. Later, on the reified IKEA Odyssey, certain conditions sink deeper and deeper under our very eyes. There's no need that can't increase. Examine both sides of this machine, the rising, ever-rising jerk, the happiness of all, etc. You want a location, but you really mean a telescope. I hand you the champagne from no occasion. Should I keep going? In certain rooms, we can only look ahead. Looking ahead is fun when you're delusional. Sometimes we say things we don't mean. Sometimes we say things we do mean, but then say, I didn't mean it, because what was said was mean and the truth hurts. I find comfort in knowing when to use a comma. It gives me a sense of certainty in this uncertain world. This is my trousseau, my love. We give each other names. It feels good. We heal well and often. How much distance are you supposed to keep between yourself and others in line at the pharmacy? I'm beginning to wonder if this is just a coping mechanism, a way to move the space between ideas and things, a strange community of nets, never-ending free throws. But sometimes I can feel calm, like right now, because tonight we'll watch the spurs and the heat and touch each other. The way you nod your head is comforting, looking up, waving red garments, ancient fireworks. It's going through the spectrum, you say, as we round the bend. We catch a glimpse of the stationary. We give sensations names. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young is not a good band name. 
despite what you think. I'm not that girl. I never lie, but I'm still learning how to tell the truth. I'm still practicing kissing. Call it studying hunger. Speaking is translating. Words have specific uses, like fingers. We make lists while constellations shift over Texas, transmissions of our likeness. We are glowing. Hold your applause. Okay, I'm going to now read from a new project I started this summer when I was living upstate on Iris Cushing's flower farm. Um, and I started a, a manuscript called The Lawn is a Social Construction. So I'm gonna read from that. Can you all hear me? And they don't have any titles. There were things I meant to bring, but it doesn't matter. I know enough to know this. I'm still not used to how dark it gets, but I like it. And I like that everything is so effusively green, chrysoprase, jade, myrtle, hunter, mint, hills almost teal in the shade. I keep saying I forgot what it feels like because things that happen attach onto you like spores then disintegrate at various rates. This is how forgetting happens. But some things stick with you like a chemical half-life some things can only be destroyed by being dug up, which is to say remembered. We repeat what we can't remember, Freud says. Back in Brooklyn, two Brits I met at a bar asked me why Americans are so obsessed with therapy. Is therapy so American? They had such ideas. Now I'm in between frequencies and route to being reset. The dirty plastic lawn chairs I brought out from the barn are now clean from the rain. It's in places like this that Skylar was meant to be read. Last night I left one fire for another. Today our weekend guest dog killed the rooster. Sarah had to finish the job, sharpened her knife, then cut off his head and buried him. I didn't see any of this. I was inside trying to write. Iris told me later. She told me Sarah was crying. Sarah's the flower farmer. She's already tan, and it's only the beginning of June. But it's summer here. This is the best way I can describe it to you. If you look hard enough, you can see wild hops, Sarah says. They look like weed and smell like weed. This farm was a hops farm before prohibition. Then it was a dairy farm. It's hard to make money dairy farming because the government determines the price of dairy. Sarah tells me I didn't know. I know nothing about farming or what to call the sounds. What are these white minuscule flowers burst they're all over? Today's the summer solstice and a full moon, a strawberry moon. First time since 1967, the summer of love, whatever that means. I build a fire, write down what to let go of on small rectangles burn them. The moon is low, the wind a natural accelerant. I hear a low voice speaking in sentences. The neighbors want us to mow the lawn. The neighbors mow their lawn twice a week. The neighbors don't know what to make of three women living together. 
The plumber, the electrician, the repairman all ask Iris about husband, inquiring about husband. Did I meet your husband? No husband, she repeats, no husband. We write a song, no husband. I make a necklace of my accomplishments. Living things ask me if I'm lonely. I wake up and dig a grave behind the hops barn where the, the, where the grasses are thick and sharp and up to my chest. One of the hens was hit by a car. This is my first time alone at the farm. I text Iris to tell her what happened. It's a bad summer to be a chicken, Iris says. The Canajoharie Library calls to say the book I requested has arrived, The Lawn, an American Obsession. On its cover, a white man wearing a Panama hat and pleated slacks with a hand-pushed lawnmower. The lawn is a social construction, I yell from the deck, topless and sweating. A chapter titled The Democratization of the Lawn concludes, lawns were not a need expressed by consumers that was then met by producers. The need was fostered by producers who continued to raise the standards of what constituted a good or acceptable front lawn. So the lawn and the engagement ring have something in common. I drive 40 minutes west to meet a man who lives in a straw house and wears no shoes. We fuck on his lawn. In the morning, he says something vaguely insulting, then gives me a tour of his shipping container, offers me a cookie and a thumbs up as I leave. <laughs> Changed, stoned, I forget my shoes. Here I've learned to make use of natural things. I haven't yet learned to assign colors to feelings. How can I, when here no one is watching? When the light at seven elongates even my perception of myself? When I go to the post office, I'm told, you're not from around here, here where I'm anonymous. Act so that there is no use in a center, Stein says. On the way to Canajoharie, I passed the Beekman Mansion, a large, pristine, formidable white house in the Georgian federal style with Palladian windows set on manicured greens. A few more miles and I'm in Sharon Springs, where fainting couches once lined its main street and everything reeked of sulfur. In the Mohawk Valley between the Adirondacks and the Catskills, Sharon covers no more than one mile. Today, only two of the once 20 hotels remain. There is a bakery and cafe, a soap shop, two minor antique stores, a small gallery, and Beekman, 1802. A couple from the city purchased the aforementioned mansion and opened the eponymous store, selling farmhouse roof slates repurposed as cheese plates for 40 bucks and linens made by an artisan weaver from historic patterns. The couple had a reality TV show, The Fabulous Beekman Boys, that lasted two seasons. Martha Stewart attended their New Year's party. A New York Times article chronicles them in winter. Sarah says they're waiting for the boom. Like what happened to Woodstock and Hudson, it will happen here too. But for now, all is crowdless. The wine store has never heard of Sancerre. And this is a relief.
Alex bends towards the water off the T-shaped dock. A heteronormative couple in khakis and a canoe pass by, country club behind them. Otsego Lake takes its name supposedly from the Mohawk word, almost maybe meaning meeting place. The story goes there's a rock in the lake where Iroquois tribes would meet. I can't remember how we started talking about Thomas Jefferson, but Alex points out that calling Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings an affair assumes that she had agency, that she had a choice. The south tip of the lake meets Cooperstown, where baseball wasn't invented. It was a lie manufactured by a local hotel owner to bring in money post-depression and prohibition, which knocked out all the hops farms. Wikipedia will tell you that Cooperstown was founded in 1766 by Judge William Cooper, father of James Fenimore Cooper, author of The Last of the Mohegans, the second book of the Leatherstocking Tales. On our way out of town, we pass signage, Indian grave, white man greeting, we near whose bones you stand were Iroquois, this wide land which now is yours was ours, Friendly hands have given back to us enough for a tomb. After the lawn is mowed, a pale yellow film. Celebration, disaster, celebration, disaster. We devour what's harvested, pull clumps of rotting leaves from the pool, fall asleep to coyote orgy. Now the house is a house of four women. Twice a day, we meet in the parlor to do the seven-minute scientific workout. The neighbors, uncomfortable in their hammocks, sky early gustin. In the movie version, there's a lot more said, more boob, more drugs, a larger question posed, a larger fence. Missing the point because making a point we keep smiling, marking our growth by how coolly we trip, how surely we fumble, less stiffly born into this valley, wanting for another history. The pool gets clean with more chemicals. It becomes a living thing to which we ascribe meaning while strengthening our, our cores. August opens its eyes and grows legs. Deer statuary appears, lowers its bronze head. I settle deeper inside the barricade, keep my bathing suit on. At lunch, discover my pasta, my dear Jamelli, cooked and eaten by an entitled guest. I've been her, yet I rage. On my walk note, more wildflowers, the feeling of knowing a place of it being mine, like an unhealthy attachment to the beloved. We're always acting out, even when there's no one around. For example, the way you feel about the deer could be the way you feel about your mother. I know I don't like the ends of things, and that probably has something to do with my relationship to death and my control issues. Technicolor birds bob above flowers like a fucking fairy tale. 
Dave, wife, Dorothy, dog, Abby, retrieves his mail, will turn 80 next week, he tells me, then hands me a spear with which I am to protect myself from coyotes. I assure him it's not necessary, but he insists, tells me about his 88 acres and the offer on Long Island he couldn't refuse. Dave's not interested in what I have to say. I thank him for the killing stick. Continuing down Berry Lane, I pass the property I hate, the aggressive log house with quaffed lawn kept an inch short, complete with American flag mound and chemical fly catchers. I clutch my new spear as the patriarch mansplains the pool. I'm not afraid of dying alone, but I'm afraid of people whose lawns don't grow. All right. Um, I'm going to end with two short poems not related to any project. Um, this um, first one I wrote uh, right after I came back from living upstate. Object relations. It was the end of something, and we all knew it. Homunculi of weeping willow shielding us from the city's ugly parts. It was us, and it wasn't us, obliviously untranslatable on the sturdiest balcony, covered in lacy interference, canopy made out of our browsing histories. We entered the master bedroom that will never be ours. If you lived there, you'd be happy, you said so surely, as if crown molding had anything to do with it. One moment you're sober and in coral, the next you're fielding questions, wishing you had worn a sports bra. What if you can't dig yourself out of the hole? What if your life is the hole? When will we stop this muscling? And then I'm going to end um, with a poem called My Friends and it's for my friends, my friends. My friends create the mood by describing it, turning off all the lights. A place in our minds wakes as in water. We dance alone and with each other. We make circles around each other, get close, then step back, then get close again, my friends. The furniture is brown. The furniture is covered in bluettes. There are drugs, my friends. Why be evasive when you can listen to an audiobook about a biologist on a mysterious expedition to Area X, an area cut off from civilization? Today I've spoken to no one, and I feel fine. But feelings aren't facts, my friends and I've eaten the last of the cheese and table water crackers, and I have no salary, but I will hold you. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.